Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shantae Lowe grew up in California and knew at the age of four, she wanted to become an Olympic athlete. Since then, Shantae has competed in four Olympic Games and has won multiple medals in high jump competitions. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Shantae Lowe reflects on her marriage, her experience at the Olympics and becoming an Olympian, and how she overcame her breast cancer diagnosis. Hey, Shantae. Hi, Carlos. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Something tells me this is the right way to start my Friday. I'm glad. Uh, yes, there you go. I'm glad we're starting <laughs> our Friday together. Now, where are you? Where in this uh, wonderful world are you today? So I'm in Orlando, Florida. Oh, interesting. What? Now, I'm from Florida originally. I'm from Miami. What are you doing in Orlando? That's where I live now. So we moved here because my mother-in-law's here to help out. And we have the National Training Center right there in Claremont. So it's perfect. Interesting. And how do you like being in like uh, Disney World, basically? Uh, I love it personally because I grew up in California and, you know, going to Disneyland was like a huge honor. And then my husband grew up here in Florida and he was just like so over Disney World. I was like, no, let's go. And we've been experiencing it together and we love it. <laughs> All right, what's your what's your favorite ride? What do you like to do? Pan I'm gonna call it Pandora. That's not right. Um it Pandora, yeah. Right? Is that is right? That, and what is it one of the roller coasters or what is it? No, so this is the one made after the movie, um, Avatar. So it is amazing. It is literally the best experience I've ever had in my entire life. Seriously. You know what? So that I have not been to Disney World a long time, but I think you just sold me. I think I'm gonna try and go. My little nephew, he's not little anymore. He's taller than me. I am, <laughs> but he's coming out to spend the summer with me. Yes. And I've been put in charge of coming up with good things to do. So I'm going to see if I can talk him into going to Disneyland. And I, does Disneyland have Pandora too? Do you know? I think this one's just at Disney World and it's at the Animal Kingdom. Okay. 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 So, and it's amazing. It's literally the best experience of my life. <laughs> see, I see. it's so funny because I have one of my, I have three sisters. I have one sister who she loves to go on these rides, but the whole point of it is to scream in my ear the whole time <laughs> the thing is going on. 
And, uh, and so we would do all of these. Um, what are the ones that just drop? I can't remember which are the ones. Do you know what I I'm talking I can't do those. Oh. Yes. <laughs> she, she's, she's afraid of those and loves them all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm terrified of those because like the drops I can't handle going upside down, going high, going fast. I'm good. But even the little baby rides with the drops, I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of funny given what you do. Do you ever yeah. do you ever get funny? Because you high jump. Do you ever get funny up in the air or no? Okay, flying, yes. Yesterday I had the most terrifying flight of my entire life. And once again, it's the drops, like being out of control and free falling. I do not like it. <laughs> Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I um, I, I think uh, I my fears. I shouldn't be saying all these on camera. But my, I'm heights freak me out. I'm not good with heights, and in certain parts of the world, they have things like in Cambodia. I don't, have you ever been to Cambodia before? No, not yet. They have some of these ancient temples that were built, and they've got really thin stairs, and they don't have at least when I was there, they don't have things on the side. And so people walk like a half a mile into the sky. Wow. That's not for me. No, <laughs> I don't think that's right. for me either. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But, uh, but you never know. You never know. So, so now where did you grow up? If not Florida, where was home originally? Where'd you yeah, grow so up? Yeah, so I grew up in California. Um, the first part of my childhood, I was in Paso Robles, California. And then the second half of my childhood, I was in Riverside. And so California, both South and Central. <laughs> And how was Riverside? I had a, um, my favorite aunt lived in uh, Loma Linda. Yes. Um, yep. So not, I think not too far from where you were. Very close. It's, it's a yeah. really tight knit community, even though it has like kind of like a big city feel. And, um, you know, I had a ton of cousins, aunts, uncles there. I think I had like 13 of my cousins at my high school. So it was really, really nice to be around so much family. At your high school? At my high school. Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> that would be wild. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> It, that maybe that would be kind of fun. Okay, okay. You know what's interesting when you say that is now that I think about it, some of my cousins had that, but in Cincinnati, because there were a number of siblings in Cincinnati, and I never thought about it, but they probably had that experience. Yeah, nobody wants yeah. to fight you when you have a whole bunch of cousins. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know what? That is true because I would have had bigger cousins then. I yep. would have had much bigger cousins. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, that's I'm not good. trying to make you feel like you missed out or anything. You but. know what? You know what? I ended up with a good enough deal. But now, was anyone else a track star, or were you the only track star in the family? Not so. All my uncles, and well, I call them uncles, but they're really my cousins. So they're like my grandmother's nieces and nephews. So I call them uncles and aunts because they're so much older. But they all had the school records at my school. So it's like. Just seeing the banners with their names on it. It was the last name Sims. And it just was amazing to know that I was kind of legacy in track and field. Oh, Andrew. So you went into it knowing you were good. So like, if like when you were six and seven, were you always the fastest kid or one of the fastest kids around? Yes. So I decided I wanted to go to the Olympics when I was four. And that's when seeing the 1988 Olympics and watching Flo Jo and I'm looking at her hair and her nails. You know, Tiffany Haddish just announced she's going to play her. <laughs> So no. Oh, yes. that's going to be good. That's a good choice. OK. Yes. okay. So there's going to be a, the track world's going crazy. And they're like, finally, they're like, Tiffany, you better understand the legacy of this role. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember Flojo. She was it's so interesting. She was uh, this will seem like a weird combination of people to put together. But but she was striking and stood out uh, track and field. 
uh, there was a TV show in Living Color at the same yes. time yes. that also didn't look like any of the other TV shows on, and it was bright and colorful and distinctive and in different. Living Color. Oh, you remember? <laughs> you know who was on there? It was a J-Lo. Yeah, she was a dancer. She was a fly girl. <laughs> she was. She was. Although I could tell she wasn't the only fly girl. That's good. I could tell somebody else was doing it in Riverside. I like that. And um, and then uh, MC Hammer, speaking of dancers. Yes. MC Hammer was, yes, yes, yes. Oh. <laughs> Wait, now, have you ever, have you ever won a dance contest or no? Yes and no. Like in small groups of people, yes. Um, but I have always secretly wanted to get an Olympic medal so I could be famous enough to be on Dancing with the Stars. So that's like my little secret motivation. <laughs> I love that. Okay, here we come this year. Here we come this year. This is going to be good. You're going to be ready for it. That would be, now who do you want as your partner? Who do you want your partner to be? Oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know. It, it'd be awesome. Okay, it's kind of weird, even though I know he's not an instructor and he was a past contestant, but it would have been amazing to have Mario Lopez as a partner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even like well, if yes. they put the stars together, like yes. previous champions, I think that'd oh. be cool. Oh, yeah. I like, what other reality show should you be on? I guess the Olympics oh, is the <laughs> ultimate reality show, but what other reality show should you be on? I don't know. Like I'm, I'm not, like I don't have enough drama for like Big Brother or something like that, but um I don't know. That's the only one I've seriously considered. And then my fun, my family should be on AFV. Like they're always trying to audition to do something funny for American <laughs> Funny Studio. So. <laughs> oh, is that right? Now, who's the funniest in the crew? Because you have three kids. <sighs> yes, I have three kids. So my son, who's seven, he's he's funny at doing slapstick comedy, but he hasn't quite mastered like stand up yet. So we're working on that. But I'll tell him, like, honey, that's not funny. Um, and then. My oldest daughter, she's actually very witty and very funny, and she's 13. Okay. Oh, is she ready to stand on a stage, you think? <sighs> Not yet, because she's in that middle school phase where she's still trying to be cool, but I think she would be the one in the future. <laughs> Wait, now, now, what's it like for them to have a famous mom and to have an Olympic mom? Do they, do they realize it all, and what does it do to them? Does it make them proud? Does it make them shy? Does it make them... You know, you know what I mean? What does yeah. it do to them? Um, I don't think that they know it. They they think that we're all we're all Olympians and all medalists. And so I kind of have to tell them, like, <laughs> no, you still have to put in the hard work. This medal's mommy's. <laughs> but at the same time, they really have it in their mind, like, okay, when I go to the Olympics, like they think it's like a family thing. So they're like really pushing towards that. And well, I think my event's gonna be this, or I think my sport's gonna be that. And they're focused on LA 2028. Oh, I love, and do you, and can you see, I mean, I know they're your children and you love them, but do you know whether they are good enough? Like, can you see already whether or not they have that thing? Yes. So my oldest daughter, she's really good at volleyball um, and she's good at high jump, too. But she has she feels that pressure from me. And so she kind of strays away from it a little bit. But in volleyball, she's really good. And she's my height already at 13. So I'm she's like five, eight. I'm five, ten. And then um, my daughter, I think she'll probably be really good in esports. She's very big into gaming, even though she's young. And my son is just raw talent. He could probably do soccer, baseball, jujitsu. Like he's, he is, he's, I think he's my seed. My husband's claiming him. I'm claiming him. We're both trying to say it's <laughs> Wait, now what's your husband's event? Because was, is he a, is he a high jumper also? 
he's actually a triple jumper. So he's he was really decent triple jumper. He went to Florida State, was all American in college. And um, yeah, and he's a great coach, like an amazing coach. Huh. Wait, now how did you two meet? How did you guys meet? On the track. Um, there was a couple girls at our track meet. They were like, oh, you see that fine guy over there? He's going to be mine. I was like, okay. I jumped over the fence first. I was like, ah, no, I'll take this one for myself. <laughs> I love it. Then was it love at first sight? Did you guys know you guys had something? Both of us. So um, he was like, wow, this is going to be my wife. I'm like, this is going to be my husband. We were married within three months. And now we're celebrating over 16 years of marriage. Wait, how old were you guys? I was 21. He was 26. And we just, it was, he was perfect. He was perfect for me. And had you ever met him before or seen him before? I had seen him. I knew him, but didn't know him. So like we had a picture at his mom's house where he was triple jumping at the Olympic trials. And I, no, he was, I was in the background of his picture. or He was in the background of my picture, one of the two. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I talked to him one time um, when I was a freshman at a track meet. And I was just like, wow, nice shirt. And that was it. And other than that, like after like three or four years, we reconnected and we're like, wow, like I love you from day one. And 16 years later. 16 years. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What's the best advice you give to people? Because that's pretty impressive. Like most of your friends <laughs> probably don't have that story. Am no. I right? So my biggest advice is don't try it. We got lucky. <laughs> but um, seriously, just trusting God. And we were like kind of we kind of had the same belief system. And so we could always rest on that whenever we had hard problems. We knew that that was the tiebreaker. So like we align our relationship up against the Bible and the tiebreaker was always going back to that. And that's why I was able to do it so early. Interesting. And have you guys ever been, if you don't mind me asking, if it's too much, don't tell me, but have you guys ever been big arguers or no? Not big arguers. So I come from a big family. So like, like, being expressive and, and fighting your point was like a big part of our family culture where he was the other way. They are just very calm and relaxed and they don't do that. Um, we like the first seven years of marriage, absolutely easy. But then right when that seven year came, it became a little bit more difficult and we really worked through it. And we were able to rely back on that, having that same foundational beliefs that helped us get through it. And now we, we help other marriage couples kind of go through their tough parts of their marriage. Interesting. And how do you guys do that? We just kind of share with them the experiences that we've been through. We're very open and transparent about our problems. And I talk about, you know, what parts of me I had to sacrifice in order for us to come to common ground. And he talks about his points. We kind of split up. I'll talk to the wife. He'll talk to the husband. And then we just kind of walk them through that process until they're better. And actually, surprisingly, Montel Jordan and his wife, Kristen, were the ones that helped us when we had a hard time. Oh, oh, six nine, Montel Jordan. Yes. <laughs> wow, I haven't heard about him. Where is he these days? I I feel like I haven't heard about him in a while. He's in Atlanta. Okay. He's in Atlanta, and so um, he still does music. He and his his wife do a um, series called Marriage Masterpiece, and we actually met him at church in Atlanta. So we all we all went to the same church. Interesting, and 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 again, only share what you feel comfortable sharing. But I think this is so valuable to so many people. Um, and you probably have seen it in lots of parts of life, including in track two, being able to see the other Sims do so well, probably guided you and inspired you both. So what do you feel like you had to give up of yourself in order to find common ground? And what did he have to give up? 
Yeah. So he, I think his sacrifices were definitely a way more in the beginning. So um, for him, he had to kind of be there when we started having kids and he honestly wanted to be an Olympic athlete himself. But there was a time period in the 2008 Olympic trials where we both had to jump at the same time. And I had a nursing one-year-old, well, we had a nursing one-year-old and we had no family there to compete. So he actually dropped out of the competition so that I could train, so that I could compete and I made the Olympic team. And when I left for the Olympics, you know, children were not allowed in the village. And so I had to go and he had to wean our nursing one-year-old by himself at home. And that was a huge sacrifice that he made. And even in the midst of, you know, what we're going through right now, um, he sacrificed his career. So he switched careers and taught at a school where our, where our kids can also attend during COVID so that everybody's in one place. And my immune system is not um, stressed out from them all going to different locations. And, you know, that, that was huge for me. And for me, I had to put aside, you know, ego, you know, I might be Olympic high jumper out there, but here at home, like my, my husband's the head of the house. We work out our, you know, our decisions and everything together. But, you know, he is the one who kind of steers the direction of this entire family. And so being able to align under a strong man, even though outside in the world, I'm like the athlete. And that was a really big adjustment. And in and, and helping both of you make that, what does he say helped him? make the adjustments he made? And what do you feel like helped you make that? Or did you guys just come by that on your own? Um, I think that we went through um, the point where we realized that the biggest thing is love. Like we, when we make decisions about how we're going to treat each other, how we're going to talk to each other, the decisions that we're going to make allow them to be out of love. And even if we correct each other on how, like, instead of saying, you made me feel like you did this, like when you did this, I felt like this. And just making that change was huge for us. And, and with um, Montel and Kristen, they, they taught us that divorce is off the table. It is like, like whenever we're having issues or problems, divorce is never an option for us. And when you take that off the table, you, you force yourself to find a way to work through those issues. And that changed everything for us. Because if you think it's an option, you're kind of like holding back a little bit, like you better say the right thing or... <laughs> And we when we took it off the table, it changed everything. And that's because they shared their experiences with us. Wow, that's that's a blessing that they uh, that they did that, and uh, and that you were in a place and a space to receive it. Yeah, um, yeah. And that and that that worked out as, as much. If you're alive, you eat. And if you are human in 2021, you've likely confronted empty store shelves and supermarkets and become a lot more curious about how your favorite foods are produced. I'm Isabel Lee, host of this season's Future of X podcast presented by Vital Farms and Ozzy. This season, we will dig into what the future of farming will look and taste like. Listen to the Future of X, Future of Farming, wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, 
or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. So what were you like when you grew up? Were you were you a quiet girl? Were you a loud girl? Like, what were you like? I was the one who always got in trouble for being loud. So I'd have like straight A's or straight E's. You know, when you're in elementary school, it's like excellent, E for excellent. Except for the part of doesn't talk in class. And it was always in for needs improvement. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> um, huge tomboy all the way up until like high school. When I started liking boys, then I kind of switched that over and um, I was just always like adventurous. Like I loved lizards, playing outside, climbing trees, jumping off of high things. That was me. <laughs> jumping off of high things. So oh, you were, like yes. jumping even then. Yes. <laughs> My grandmother said I never walked anywhere. I just jumped everywhere that I went. And what, what's the highest you've ever jumped, even if people weren't around? What do you think's the highest you've ever jumped? I remember doing this when I was four. Um, we lived on a second story. We lived like an apartment. We were on the second story. And I remember running and climbing on the top of the banister and jumping off into the ground. And my mom never knew and I didn't get hurt. And then when she used to go to work and we moved into a house, I would climb up on the roof of the house and jump off and just just keep doing it over and over again. And my mom had like no clue. <laughs> and, and what do you think was true about your body that other people would have broken legs and arms and you could do that. What do you think was true about your body that, that didn't happen to you? I mean, maybe because I was young and, and limber or, or maybe because I was watching the Ninja Turtles and understood how to land the proper way. Like, <laughs> I have no idea, but it was it was I don't know. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> wow. Wow. All 
All right, so let me ask you a couple questions. Do you think you could jump over a refrigerator? Huh, how high is a typical refrigerator? You know, probably, what is that? Five feet, maybe six yeah. feet? Yeah, I could jump. So my American record would be higher than LeBron James's head. So my American record is six, eight, and three quarters of an inch. So you could jump LeBron. At least, at least I could a few years ago. <laughs> but yes, yes. <laughs> and now, did you ever try any other events as well? Like, were you ever were you ever trying the hundred meter or two hundred meter or any of that? Yeah. So I have tried those events. I'm okay. But funnily, or, or strangely enough, I've found it that I'm a little bit faster now than I was when I was younger. So I think I might start exploring that a little bit more in the next couple of years. But um, I've done the long jump and. When I did the long jump at the U.S. Nationals, I think it was like within an hour or so of breaking the American record in the high jump, I went to the long jump and jumped the 10th U.S. all-time long jump. And then after that, you know, we ended up getting pregnant with our second child and I just stopped long jumping. So that's kind of like in the back of my head, like I might want to explore that again. And, and so if you look back and tell, because I'm sure young people ask you all the time who they themselves want to be Olympians, what do you think are one of the two best things that you've done that allowed you to become an Olympian? Like, because yeah. there's stuff that people tell you that you read, but then there's like the real, real. Yes. Like, what are a couple things in your mind that you've done that had you not done them, you probably either wouldn't be an Olympian or you would have been the kind of Olympian you've been? So I think that the first thing is setting that goal early. So I never gave up on it. Like, I walked it out every day of my life, like, this is what I'm going to do. And it started by writing it down. So I have, like, this ratty old notebook from when I was young where I wrote inside of it, like, I want to be an Olympian. I want to be an American record holder. I Then I wrote those things in it. And just looking now and seeing that all those things, like, happened, I don't, I'm not saying, like, manifesting it just because I wrote it, but because I wrote it down, it was on my mind every day. And every step that I was taking was trying to push me towards that. So that's definitely the real, real. And then the second thing is sacrifice. Like people like the glory part of it, but I had to sacrifice like some friends that weren't kind of pushing me towards my goal, you know, some parties that I wanted to go to that I couldn't. Um, and it kept me out of trouble. But a lot of the things that seemed fun when you're young, if they're taking you further away from your goal instead of closer or putting your goal at risk, just giving those things up. And that was a huge sacrifice that I had to take on early on. And then you went to your first Olympics when you were pretty young, right? Yes. So 20. So a year before I met my husband um, at the Olymp, I was a sophomore in college and I made my first Olympic team. And did you expect to make that one or in your mind had you thought it was going to be the next one, maybe or the one after that? That was the one I was planning to make it for. So I had a teammate who went to the Olympic trials when I was in high school and her name was Nicole Demby. And then I had, um, you know, the USC coach, Joanna Hayes. She went to my high school and she also made an Olympic trials the year before. And she came and spoke to us like, I'm going to try out for this next Olympic team. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do it, too. And so when I picked my college, I picked my amazing coach in my school based off of the fact that he had got other people to the Olympic Games and I wanted to go. And, and so when you uh, when you went to try out nerves, stress, any of that or excitement, because this is something you've been writing about, dreaming about working for for all those years. Both. I was terrified. I remember shaking and and they're introducing all the ladies and they have like their Nike apparel or their Asics apparel. And I'm sitting there in my Georgia Tech uniform, just terrified. And um, when they call my name and they announce me, 
I'm, you know, I just raised my hand like this and nobody knew who I was. I wasn't a sponsored athlete. I was a student. And then I got the opportunity to jump. And then that's when all the nerves went away because I knew I had been preparing for it. I was ready and it was just time to execute. And so I found calm in that moment and I ended up getting second place and, and making the Olympic team. And I didn't even have a passport. That was the bad thing. <laughs> I had to go get a passport. <laughs> now, what surprised you the most about the Olympics, given that you've been dreaming about it your whole life when you actually got there and got to do it? What surprised you the most about it? How big it is. And how much diversity that there is in the Olympic Village. And I do a talk now because, like, you know, there's a lot of things going on about diversity in our country. And I always do diversity based on the Olympic Village. And I, and I love to talk about how you see like a Simone Biles who's like so short and petite, but she's perfectly powerful for what she does. And then you see like an eight foot Yao Ming who is like big. His calves are like this huge. And just knowing that he's perfectly built for what his specialty is. And everybody has a place from different parts of the world, you know, different sports, different interests, but we all come together to make this big monumental event. And I love it. All right, now you gotta tell me only because some Olympians have told me before, they say you guys, you Olympians in the Olympian village, you guys get a little wild. Is that true? That's what they do. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but does they include the formerly young and single Shantae or what? No, I was I was good. And I love to say that, like, I can go on the track circuit and say, nope, not me. But <laughs> yes, it does get a little crazy and a little hectic. And and, you know, some of the rumors are true, but I kept my nose to the ground. Shantae was trying to get a medal, <laughs> not a baby at the Olympics. So. Right. All right now, now, who impressed you the most at the Olympics? I mean, because that does now you're putting me in that place and I'm now envisioning getting literally to see the world and see all these different kinds of athletes, shapes, sizes, sports, expertise, all these different. So you're actually, you're putting me there for a moment. Who, for whatever reason, I'm purposely making it open-ended, which athlete really has struck you that you've come across as a especially spectacular or talented athlete? For me, um, hands down, it was Kobe Bryant. And the reason why is, you know, traditionally the NBA teams stay outside of the Olympic Village. They stay like on a ship or a hotel somewhere more secure and safe um, for them and where they're able to focus. And Kobe made it a point to come to the Olympic Village and he interacted with all the rest of the athletes. And at his lead, all the other NBA players started coming and visiting the village. And I remember walking down the um, walking down the, the walkway and I exchanged pins with him and he was just walking by himself. And I, I love that he took that initiative and it, it, it made me feel like, wow, he's like the most awesome athlete here because he didn't have to do that, but he wanted to be a part of it. And he felt like it was a big moment. And I remember seeing interviews that it was important for him to be on the Olympic team. He didn't have to, but he did. And that's why hands down best athlete of all time that I've ever experienced in the Olympic games. Mamba mentality. Yes. Um, now, have you ever been intimidated by another athlete? Have you ever been out there? You like, I know I'm an Olympian, but like I'm intimidated. Have you ever been intimidated by another athlete? Yes. My first Olympic games, because I had learned how to high jump from watching like VHS tapes. I'm like dating myself and rewinding them and watching all these women. And I learned how to high jump from them. And so when I went to the Olympic games for my first time, I don't know why it didn't occur to me that the women I had learned to high jump from were going to be 
on the apron with me and I froze. I froze. It was my worst. It was the best and worst experience I ever had. And after that, no other jumper had intimidated me. Wow. Wow. And have you ever tried to do the flip? Have you ever tried to intimidate another jumper? Twice. So once it went really well and once it went very badly. Um, I'll talk about the time it went well first. I was in Iowa, I believe, and a high jumper was taking too long. We only have a certain period of time for warmups before they close the pit and we don't get to practice anymore. And this girl was standing in front of the bar and she was just like in the way. And I was like, come on, you know, please move. And she was kind of being a jerk. So I just jumped over her head. You did what? (laughs) I was like, what did you do that for? So as she was standing there, I went and ran and I took off and I jumped over her head. That was like young jerky Shantae. (laughs) And I won that meet and did very well. And then um, in Athens, I tried that same thing. No, I didn't try to jump over a girl's head, but I was just looking at her. I was, you know, maybe listening to DMX or something. I don't know. I was a little bit more wild back then. And I was just giving this girl the worst stank eye before it was even a thing. And she came out there and broke her country's record and whooped my butt. I said, I will never, I will never do that again. <laughs> you inspired instead of intimidated. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Hey, tell me about the cancer. Cause I heard you talk about it elsewhere and it struck me for so many reasons. I actually forwarded it to my whole family today. One of the things you talked about and some of the things you did, but, but, but how did you find out that you had breast cancer, right? How did you find out that you had breast cancer? Yeah, so I was doing self-breast exams, and surprisingly enough, it was because of a Jamaican um, Olympic track athlete, and um, she had actually found a, a stage zero breast cancer, and so she talked about her experience having a double mastectomy, and when I saw her, I asked her about it, and she was like, yeah, you know, I just, you have to just start doing breast exams, and I asked her how to do it, and she told me right there, like, on the bus, in Europe, like, in the middle of the night like how to do it. And so then I started doing regular self-breast exams from that point. And within one year, you know, I actually found my own tiny rice-sized lump. And I was like, oh, this doesn't feel good. And um, I went to the doctor. I was terrified. Like it's, it's very scary to go and get a diagnosis, but looking at my kids, I knew that they always said early detection is a way to give yourself the most options. And so I went in, they did a ultrasound and a mammogram, even though I was young. And after they did that, um, they were like, no, it's a lymph node. You're fine. No big deal. And then 11 months later, I'm like, okay, I know lymph nodes get smaller. This is not getting smaller. This is getting bigger. And I went back in for a second opinion. This time it was a woman doctor who listened to me and um, she went back in for a second opinion and they were like, okay, you need to go have a biopsy. And, I, you know, at that point, I'm like, oh, gosh. And me being overwhelmingly positive, I convinced myself, this is a warning. After this, take better care of your body. No way it's cancer. And I actually brought my kids on the appointment with me because I was so convinced. And she was like, I don't have good news for you. You, you. you think you were so convinced or you think you were kind of trying to prepare yourself, trying to give yourself some good surround yourself in good blessing. What what do you, you think you were really convinced? I was really convinced because I was completely, completely shocked. Like when it turned out that it was breast cancer, Um, you know, I was 
not as familiar with the world as I am now. So I understood the dangers, but didn't think it was a real possibility. You know, I just wanted to do the smart thing, be safe, make sure it's not breast cancer. And so when I went in and she told me, I don't have good news for you. Um, this is, it's breast cancer and we have to start treatment immediately. And that was like, wow. But looking back, we found it at a stage one. And that's amazing just because we were very vigilant about doing the breast cancer, um, the breast self-breast exams. And it was huge being able to find it so early at such a treatable stage. Now say more to me about, I think I heard you say elsewhere that when you first said you thought there could be something wrong, that the doctors didn't believe you and that you therefore had to take a different approach in order even to get the test. Yes. And, and I don't like, I pride myself on integrity, um, honesty, and you know, that's, that's a big part of who I am, but there's a lot of times when you're healthy, you're, you look, you know, you look fit and, and you're young and people don't think that you could be a person that's has breast cancer. And so initially they did not want to give me the test. And, and one of the things that they will give you a test for is if you have a mother or sister who's been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and then there's a lot of tips online where people are saying, hey, if you're diagnosed, if, if they don't want to give you a test to have your doctor write it in your in your chart, say, hey, please write in my chart that you're refusing to give me this diagnostic test that I want. And usually the doctor will give it to you. And, and that's the advice that I got online because I was like, look, I need the test. You know, you know I want you to say that again, because I literally think that's the most powerful idea yeah. I've heard this year. And that's the thing that I ended up texting to my family, because I think, say that again, because I want people to hear that because I don't think most of us, I certainly didn't think that way before I heard you say that. And I thought it was such a powerful but doable thing. Yes. So one of the things that I learned from um, a beautiful soul named Cheyenne, she actually just passed away um, of ovarian cancer, but she spent the, her last couple of years really telling people how to advocate for themselves. And one of the things that she said is that if a doctor refuses to give you a diagnostic test that you want, you say, can you please write in my chart that you are refusing to give me this particular diagnostic test? And a doctor not wanting to do that, especially if it comes back later that you do have um, said disease or illness or ailment that you're worried about, um, they'll usually give you the test. And you always have the right to go get a second opinion or find somebody who will give you that di diagnostic exam and keep pressing until you're satisfied. Yeah, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. We did a special on this show looking at the sad disparities between many Black patients and non-Black patients, mainly white patients, and the degree to which we often don't get the same uh, diagnostic, the same treatment, uh, the same response, and and that need to advocate for yourself um, and and for others in order to get even just basic proper treatment. Um, and so I'm gl I'm glad that you did. So what was the challenge? I'm glad you caught it so early. What was the challenge like for you? Did it derail your opportunities as an Olympian? Did it change your life in other ways that that maybe I can or cannot imagine? Yeah. So, you know, my mindset is completely different. I think that like being an amazing athlete takes a certain level of petty. <laughs> like, like 
And and I'll say that that amount of petty was completely wiped away from me. And I'm not saying I can't be a great athlete. I'm just saying my perspective has changed. And just as you just noted, there is a huge disparity in the African-American community on how we are treated. I even saw that, you know, with other women that were going through breast cancer diagnosis the same time as me. And we're um, statistically more likely to have less favorable outcomes. And especially with triple negative breast cancer, um, we're 40% more likely to die of these cancers than our white counterparts. That doesn't make any sense. And so when I think about going and continuing to train, not even just to and through this Olympics, but you know, to the next world championships, as long as I can ride this wave to be able to spread this message, it's about making people aware of these racial disparities, of the, the risk associated with breast cancer, what to look for and how to advocate for yourself. And I feel like when I compete now, it's a labor of love. And I don't speak for all people, but with the information that I now know, I feel like it's important for me to push that out as much as possible, as many avenues as possible and however I can. Did, did the cancer impact any of your family relationships either with I can make assumptions, but I don't want to make assumptions. Did it impact uh, your marriage? Did it impact uh, your relationship with your children or with others? How did, how did the cancer play out? Yeah, so initially I was, I'm used to being the strong one, the, the, you know, the one that my kids look up to and see as superwoman. And I was terrified that they wouldn't look at me the same. And I remember my, my, my son being terrified to hug me. And I just lived for my son's hugs and he was scared that he was going to break me. And it broke my heart with him thinking that I was like, with me thinking that he might think that I was weak. And, you know, that's when I started changing my mindset of how I approach this. It's like, I don't go to an Olympic games by myself. I have a coach, I have a massage therapist, I have, you know, an entire team behind me. And so tackling this breast cancer diagnosis, I felt like, it was time to assemble an amazing team once again. And it doesn't make me weaker. It makes me stronger. And so when I started understanding that, I was able to really feel comfortable. And, and I think one of the things when it came to my marriage was that, you know, I had, a, I had a double mastectomy. So, you know, when it came to my marriage, I was definitely very um, um, insecure about, you know, a different type of body, a body with scars and how my husband would react to it, or even if it would be, you know, would the intimacy even be the same? That's a huge problem for many, many women. And my husband was so loving and he really took the time to let me know that he still loved me and I wasn't different. He loves me even more and that he was here for me. And not only is he in love with the outside of me, but he's in love with the inside of me. Like now, you know, I have fake eyebrows drawn on and fake eyelashes. And I had hair, you know, almost to my butt. So, you know, just with that being gone, it was, it was definitely hard. And, and, and why do you think, why do you think he was able to, to show you that love? Because you know that that fairy tale doesn't happen for many people. Yeah. For many people, that kind of diagnosis, I'm sure you've had friends, that diagnosis can fracture relationships. Yes. Um, you know, I think that it's a testament to, you know, having those same type of values. And, you know, one of the things that he shared with me when we first were courting in that three months <laughs> was um, how he watched his grandparents. And he was like, man, I want to be the type of husband that if anything ever happens with my wife, 
I want to be able to be there for her. And I saw that as an amazing quality that I would want in a, in a, in a partner. And so when I thought about like marrying him, it made it so easy because I knew that that was what was in his heart. So, you know, in the moment when he had the opportunity to do it, he, he definitely stepped up to the plate. Do you think you're a different mom now that you've gone through this? I'm an extremely different mom. Um, I used to sweat the small stuff a lot. And there were several things that I wanted to do with my kids that I kind of put off. Like as a professional athlete, I'm traveling all over the world. And I put a lot of those things off, like, you know, teaching the youngest how to tie a shoe, making sure all of them could ride bikes. My daughter has long natural hair, like teaching her how to do it. And when I was faced with that diagnosis, those are the first things that popped in my mind. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And I wasn't able to teach my kids these things. And so now instead of pushing those things off, I've made them a priority. And, and I feel com- more comfortable now that I'll be here for years to come, but I'm not pushing those things off. And I take every day as a blessing and, and I'm definitely a different mom. Huh. And what about as an athlete? Like what I, you know, I both, Probably can't imagine, not probably, I can't imagine what it's like to build my body up to a place where I'm an Olympic caliber athlete, but then to get, have cancer attack it and to deal with mastectomies and chemotherapy and all the other things I'm assuming you had to do in order to fight it off and to get healthy. What has that done to you as an athlete? Are you as good? Are you almost as good? Are you better? What has that done to you as an athlete? Yeah, so um, physically, I had to be patient and it it was very similar to when I came back from my three kids. So it took a lot of patience. It took um, doing it one day at a time, you know, and and really being very strategic on how I trained. Um, One of the things that I noticed is that my tendons are a lot tighter than they were before. So I have to spend a lot more time with preventative care, stretching, um, warming up my body before I run. But on the other end of the spectrum, mentally, I feel stronger. I feel like, um, and and a lot of athletes can attest to this, when you're running an open 400, right, by yourself, that's one time around the track, you're kind of in your head, it's kind of strategy, but when you get that baton in your hand, something happens. And when you're running for your team, you do amazing things that you didn't even know your body could do. And that's where I feel like I am now, I'm taking like a mental checklist, like, okay, I'm older for athlete, but I still feel young. And mentally, I feel like because I have a mission associated with my training that's not selfish, I feel fueled by it. And that's what's changed me as an athlete, where I feel like I would imagine like what it feels like to be like a Lakers team in a championship stadium with people yelling your name. That's how it feels when I go to practice every day. Oh, I love that. Oh, that definitely feeds you in a different way. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, 
This is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. So where will you go from here, do you think? If I were to come have coffee with you 10 years from now, 20 years from now, Shante, where will I see you? What do you what do you either hope to or expect that you'll be doing at that time? Yes. Yeah, so I'm excited because I'm writing two books. So one will be a children's book and just helping the kids. To, it's not really focusing on the cancer journey, but more about resilience. And in my past, I've dealt with homelessness, dealt with incarcerated parents, um, you know, um, different domestic violence abuse. And so just talking kids through that process in their life and showing them that their current circumstances are not ultimately determinant of their outcomes and and showing them what's possible when you have a chance. So that's like what I'm really excited about and definitely also writing a book through this cancer journey, women, men, people that may have been impacted by it. So just kind of sharing my experience that way. But um, outside of the athletic world, I are the athletic world. I love speaking and I've been doing that everywhere like anyone who like wants me to speak I'm like yes 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 <laughs> and um just it fuels me to know that I can help people with my experiences and kind of inspire them and help um corporations cultures groups no big not, not too big or too small um I just love helping and loving people you know Shante, I also think you probably have a particular opportunity that not a lot of people have where I suspect your energy, your positivity may allow you to talk to people. What's the right way to say this? I think that there are a lot of people, many people have trouble hearing from people who have very different points of view or different experiences, different journeys in them. 
And so sometimes it's hard and they get stuck in their own bubbles. And we need people who can kind of cut across bubbles and enter into new spaces and have conversations with people who otherwise may not get access to that conversation. And I think we particularly need it in this moment of kind of racial reckoning. I think we need people who have the ability to go and maybe help people see a different set of things. And I suspect that you probably have had more success with that uh, than many people, that there are many more folks who are open to you and your journey than they might otherwise be. Is that, I don't want to project on you, but is that, is that, has that been your experience? Is that true? Yes. Um, I, I love when I get the opportunity to speak and I love when people could see value in, in my story and my experiences. And I have, you know, a wide range of being able to, you know, to the point where I was going to school every day just to get the free lunch to being, you know, a top athlete, you know, on, on, the biggest world stage. And it's like a wide range of experiences in between. And I, you know, I never consider myself famous or, or like celebrity, like at all. I, I feel like, like I'm Shantae from the block. Like, like I, and I just getting the opportunity to talk to people and, and um, share. I have found that a lot of people are open and receptive to it because I'm, I'm me, I'm genuine. And, and I think that, you know, either you love me or you won't, but I'm always going to be me. And I think people like that and appreciate it. Have you seen that? Uh, are you on TikTok? Are you one of these TikTok people? Yes. <laughs> Not yet. And my daughter is like, so this is the reason why my daughter wants TikTok. And she was like, look, mom, if you're on TikTok and I can't be on it, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, so now we're planning on doing duet stuff together. But oh, nice. Yes. And then we'll we'll let her do her own thing. And then, you know. Well, I'm looking forward to those duets. You know, <laughs> you made me laugh for a second when you say, because I'm always me, because they have a beautiful one of Kanye on there that everybody's doing now, where Kanye said, um, I guess he, he won some award, and he said, you know, a lot of people ask me what would happen if we didn't, if I didn't win this award. And then he paused very dramatically, and he said, <laughs> thank God we'll never know. <laughs> and, uh, and they go on. But it's great, and everybody is using it. And there is a beauty to being able to be yourself. And as you know, many people have a lifelong journey and never feel like they are ever in their own lane. And, yeah. and that, and so that is a blessing. I'm sure it's a hard one blessing, but it's still a blessing that you yeah. do feel like you're able to be yourself. Um, um, Shante, I'm gonna do a little rapid fire with you here in the end. Do you mind? Oh, you're ready. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, what's your favorite movie of all time? Oh, oh, that's so, okay. Funny enough, my favorite movie was Devil Wears Prada, but Cruella just took it over. Cruella is like Devil Wears Prada on steroids. Best movie. I absolutely love it. Wow. Okay. You may make me watch it. Are your favorite TV series? What's your favorite TV series? Ooh. Oh, that's so hard. Okay. Um, what's it called? I'm watching Chosen right now. I don't know if anybody's ever seen it. It's the reenactment of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but like it brings it to life and humanizes like Jesus in a way that you've never seen before. And it's very entertaining. So chosen. Ooh. All right. What's your karaoke song? Don't laugh at me. I like big butts and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. That's how we're going to start this piece. All right. The most beautiful place you've ever been to in the world. Croatia, hands down. And it shocked me because like the stuff that you hear on the news um, split Croatia, most beautiful place in the entire world. Wow. And are you a 
five-star hotel? Are you an Airbnb girl? Like, who are you? Okay, because I've lived, like, the life of sleeping on the floor. I am definitely five-star hotel. I can't wait to get the chance to go to Dubai. Like, that's on my bucket list. Um, But I like Airbnb. I like the idea of it. If we go with a family, potentially Airbnb. But if it's just me and, like, my husband, (laughs) five-star. Five-star. Okay, okay. Nothing wrong with a little five-star. Nobody ever got hurt by that. Um, If you could have dinner with anybody, dead or alive, who would you love to have dinner with? Barack Obama. Really? I, yes, I would. I would love to pick his brain. If if he could, and Barack Obama and Michelle, I think of them as one. So if I could have them both. But yes, I, I love, I would love to talk to them like personal. S- sliding doors question. If the Olympics hadn't worked out, what would you have done career-wise? <laughs> I've been a backup dancer for Missy Elliott. <laughs> <laughs> we had Timbaland on the show earlier. Yes, That's good. Yes. Okay. That's good. That's good. That's good. I love that. If you had a chance to go back and tell your younger self one thing, what would you tell her? <sighs> Don't worry so much because everything works out. Everything. Really? Yes. Everything. Everything I ever worried about worked out. I used to worry about who I was going to marry. I used to worry if I was able to have kids. I used to worry, you know, I used to worry about everything, about being homeless and and everything works out. Who's been been one of your biggest allies? You clearly have dreamed fearlessly in this life. And, 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 And thankfully, so many good things have come true. Who have been one or two of your biggest allies in helping make these dreams a reality? You know, funny thing enough, it, it's, you know, besides my husband, and I've talked a lot about how he's been an amazing ally for me, but my sponsors, they've picked me up when they didn't have to. Um, you know, Nike has been supportive of me for 15 years, 15, maybe 16 now. I've had three kids with them. They've never dropped me. They've never, they've been, and if it wasn't for them, I would not be able to continue doing this. And now, Um, with this breast cancer journey, even in the midst of going through chemotherapy and being very unsure about my athletic um, abilities, like Eli Lilly picked me up like easily and Nike signed me in the middle of chemotherapy. And that if they didn't do that, I'd have to go back to work and I'd have to do a traditional job and I wouldn't have the time to be able to be this voice and this advocate. And so, you know, with Eli Lilly being very Um, particular about wanting the world to know what's possible when you're given the opportunity they gave me mine to help my, you know, help me reach my potential. And I have no words for it because they put food on my, you know, they put food on my kid's table and they keep a roof over our head. And, you know, that's, that's been my biggest ally. Mm. Uh, Shante, you have such a good energy and I hope you continue to share it so brightly in this world. And I really do hope uh, you get to meet Michelle and Barack. Um, I, I think I think, I think, think joy would flow both ways. So I hope that happens. <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I have been a big fan for a long time. So I am so glad for the opportunity. And I love talking with you. <laughs> Same. Well, you know, I'm hoping we'll do it in person uh, one of these days. I, I uh, My dad has always wanted to go to the Olympics. And... Um, you know, I've, uh, the last time around in Rio, I was scared uh, for him because you know, of all of the, um, at the time, um, the Zika uh, virus at the time. 
And in the back of my mind, I've been playing around here. And I know it's still probably not safe, not easy, but he's he's getting older and uh, and I keep thinking, so I don't know, Shantae, be careful if you end up qualifying <laughs> and you know, your husband needs some extra cheerleaders behind him to uh, to cheer for you. We might uh we, we might find our way over there. So well, you have some good opportunities next year. The world championships for track and field are in Oregon. And then, yeah, so they're here for the first time in my career. The world championships for track and field will be here in the United States. And, and you know what? That is my final question. Where is the best place to, I ask musicians this sometimes, like where's the best place to do a musical performance? Where's the best place to do a track competition? There's only two in the United States, Des Moines, Iowa. They love track and they are amazing. So jumping in that Drake Stadium and then um, definitely going to Oregon and going to the track there. So the one that we're going to hold the Olympic trials, hands down. They call it Track Town USA. Best place to jump. Nice. Okay. All right. I'm, uh, I'm on my way. Well, hey, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And when are the trials when... Uh, so I go the 19th and the 21st of this month. So in a couple of weeks. <laughs> okay. Okay. Weeks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wish okay. me luck. I have a qualifier tomorrow. You know, I got knocked out because of COVID for a couple of weeks. So I still have to qualify. So it's it's definitely nerve wracking, but I'm, I'm fighting to the end. <laughs> I, see, I see you on Dancing with the Stars. I see it. It's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know if they want me that. <laughs> I'm ready for it. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Um, Shante, be safe. I'll see you soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Carlos. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends to find us on the iHeart Podcast app or Apple Podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.